For this episode, we invited Richard Gowan, who is UN Director at Crisis Group, to join us on the next page to gain another perspective on the UN and the way multilateralism is evolving. This episode follows on well from recent conversations we've had on the Next Page pod with Adam Day, head of the Geneva office at UNU's Center for Research Policy, and also with Nikhil Seth, executive director of UNITLA. We hope you enjoy this insightful conversation. Hello and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the Library and Archives designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. I'm Amy Smith and I'm delighted to have here with with me in person our guest for this episode, who's Richard Gowan. Richard is UN Director at Crisis Group and he's also a Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Richard Gowan, thanks very much for being here today. Thanks very much for the invitation. So we're very curious to hear more about your insights on multilateralism, but first, Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about your role at Crisis Group. So the International Crisis Group is a global conflict prevention organisation. We have colleagues working in difficult and dangerous places around the world, uh, often talking to armed groups who are in the middle of uh, very brutal conflicts. And my job sitting in New York, is to take the information that we're getting from our colleagues on the ground and communicate it to UN officials but also members of the Security Council. And what we hope to do is improve the level of debate about situations such as Afghanistan or Haiti and hopefully influence the UN's response to uh, the crises, and especially the crises that are on the Security Council agenda. That's fascinating. You know, we often see many of your tweets on <laughs> on multilateralism. So anyone following multilateralism on Twitter has probably come across references to your name. And I couldn't help noticing that um, a lot of these articles and interviews with you and press and on social media have a headline of Richard Gowan Explains. This makes things very easy for the rest of us, but we were wondering just how easy is it um, to analyse and comment on some of the complex multilateral processes at the UN, and what do you find are the real main challenges in explaining the UN clearly? Well, I think the challenge with the UN is that it's an organisation that does incredibly important and interesting things, but it tends to wrap up Uh, its activities in very technical and sometimes, frankly, quite turgid institutional language. And I think that for most people in the wider world, you know, sitting down and reading through uh, the transcript of a UN debate or even reading through a UN resolution can be a a rather daunting business because the language is so arcane specific to the institution. What I've tried to do as someone who's worked on the UN for about 20 years is translate all this arcane diplomatic language and all the diplomatic processes into sort of simple political analysis. And I think that when you cut through all the verbiage, um, you realise that we're talking about crucial humanitarian work in places like Syria, matters of life and death in conflict zones such as Ukraine and and Haiti. And I think when you 
when you focus on those underlying issues and what's at stake, suddenly people get a much stronger instinct for what you know, what multilateralism is about. I mean, I do worry that over the last 20 years, the period that I've been associated with the UN, we've seen the quantity of media coverage of the organization decreasing. We've definitely seen a lot of the major uh, global news organizations like the Financial Times and the Washington Post, you know, cutting journalist posts at the UN in New York. And so it's important that those of us who still care about the organization um, are out there as much as possible explaining what it is doing in terms that don't just make sense in Geneva and Vienna and a small part of Manhattan, but also make sense in the wider world. You bring a lot of clarity. Let's talk about multilateralism then and how it's evolving. You wrote an article in 2018 for United Nations University, UNU, with the title Multilateralism in Freefall? And in this article, you opted for what you called a 50-50 mix of optimism and pessimism in surveying the multilateral scene. That was back in 2018. Where do you stand today on that balance? And what do you see as the major challenges multilateralism is facing now and will be facing in the short term? Well, there's been a lot of talk about a crisis of multilateralism uh, over the last five or six years. And back in 2018, we were looking at a situation where the previous U.S. administration, um, President Trump's administration, seemed to be pulling America back from a lot of international institutions. And the question at that moment was whether the U.N. system would persevere if the U.S., still the world's greatest power, were to reject international cooperation. Um, now, the challenges today are different. You know, I think the UN actually muddled through the Trump era better than many of us had expected. But while we now have a US administration that is broadly pro-UN um, in Washington, we're sort of seeing great power tensions, um, especially tensions between the US, China and Russia, uh, increasingly dominate um, multilateral debates, and so there is still a crisis of multilateralism, but it's it's a it's a sort of shifting it's a shifting crisis with with new features. I mean, I am, I think, like anyone around the UN, up to and including Secretary General Guterres, very concerned about how major power competition will affect international cooperation. So that's the fifty percent of me that is pessimistic. But I am also optimistic for a couple of reasons. I mean, I continue to see uh, bodies like the Security Council and the Human Rights Council actually managing a historically uh, very large caseload of issues. Um, and even though we've seen a lot of splits at the UN over Russia's aggression against Ukraine, you know, Russia and the Western powers are still working together through the UN on other issues like um, like Afghanistan. You know, I also think that there's a vast amount of multilateral activity beyond bodies like the Security Council that we just take for granted. The work of many of the technical agencies in Geneva being being a case in point, and that sort of multilateral cooperation, that sort of everyday multilateralism, uh, you know, also grinds on. 
despite all the big power tensions of the moment. Uh, you know, it seems to me that at the end of the day, multilateralism is it's now the sort of the Wi-Fi of the international system. Um, you know, we now assume that wherever you go, you will ha- you will have Wi-Fi, and that isn't always true in Geneva, I notice, but in, in most other <laughs> most other centres, you can expect to get a Wi-Fi signal. And actually, um, you know, without that, uh, a lot of our day-to-day life would be rather complicated. Similarly, I think in international affairs, the work of multilateral agencies is just a constant, but we're so used to it that we don't really notice that it's there. And so I still think that um, actually multilateralism is, is not in free fall. Um, it is a constant, um, although it is facing a lot of tests. So still 50-50, a lot of good points there. Yeah, I mean, it's ironic because in in the past I've sometimes uh, been accused of being a, a pessimist about the future of the UN. Now some of my colleagues, including UN officials, say that I'm curiously optimistic. But the reason that I am somewhat optimistic about the state of the UN system is that we do see it going through through a very, very troubled period, and yet we still see it delivering results. I mean, to take another example, it is striking that last year, you know, despite the level of hostilities between Russia and Ukraine, Secretary General Guterres was able to mediate the Black Sea Grain Initiative. You know, the, the UN is still showing you know, quite a high degree of resilience um, when it's under pressure, and I, I think that we shouldn't forget that resilience. And actually, it's something that we should, you know, we should celebrate, if you will. How does multipolarity affect multilateralism? Well, I think I think this is a huge concern, not least in Washington. I mean, we have to be honest that the you know the work of the UN and related organisations expanded hugely after 1989 and after the end of the Cold War. And, of course, that was under the aegis of, you know, the US being the world's sole superpower. Um, Now, the US was not always a good friend towards the UN. Um, You know, well before Trump, we, you know, we had the Bush administration, which was pretty hostile to uh, the UN system at many times. But nonetheless... The UN that we know today grew up and evolved in a period of US power. Now we face a situation where China, over the last decade, has started to position itself as an alternative leader in the UN system to the US, especially on development issues, but to some extent on on other questions like human rights as well. We don't know over the longer term, whether the US and China will find a way to cohabit in multilateral institutions in which both would feel that these institutions serve their interests. I think that for some American policymakers, there's a concern that uh, China is going to take over, in inverted commas, parts of the UN. I think that our Chinese colleagues sometimes worry that the US and other Western powers are, are deliberately trying to to limit their influence in the UN system. If it's not possible to find a modus vivendi 
between Beijing and Washington in UN institutions, then that will have a significant negative effect on on those institutions. But again, I do see reasons for slight optimism. I mean, you know, over the last 14, 15 months, uh, the Chinese have been very active in New York, behind the scenes um, around the Security Council, urging other members of the council you know, to keep working together on problems such as Afghanistan, despite their differences over Ukraine. Uh, I think that there is actually a common interest between the US and China in having the multilateral system as we know it today uh, more or less working. We hear a lot about the big powers, uh, but smaller states also play a role. Uh, for example, Switzerland is now presiding the UN Security Council. Malta presided earlier this year. What can we gain collectively from the perspective of smaller states? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that firstly in the Security Council, the elected members um, have actually taken on a very significantly increased responsibility since February 2022 because it hasn't been possible for the five permanent members of the council to stitch up deals over the heads of the other members because they have been so divided um, over the the war on Ukraine. Um, But in that space, what we've actually seen is countries like Norway, countries like Ireland, um, but also non-Western countries like Kenya actually really stepping up in New York and working together to craft um, diplomatic compromises over issues like the mandate for humanitarian aid to Syria. And I think the elected members of the Security Council in 2022 played an enormously important role just keeping the council on the, you know, on the road by finding compromises uh, that would allow the council to keep functioning on issues like Syria, even while the, the permanent members were, were locked in, in furious debates over Ukraine. So that, I mean, that's a very specific example of how smaller states can keep multilateral diplomacy going. And I think you know, Switzerland uh, has very much taken up that mantle, um, along with, with Malta, Japan, Brazil, and other members of the council this year. And there is a sense for these elected members of the council that they do have a special responsibility to maintain the institution. I think if you look beyond the Security Council, we see small and medium-sized states, you know, driving policy discussions at the UN on on many topics. Uh, The most obvious of those, obviously, is climate change. Small... Small island states like the Marshall Islands, Vanuatu, are really in the, the lead in discussions of climate change, and they have a very strong moral voice in discussions of global warming because it is an existential threat for them. As sea levels rise, some of these countries could disappear. But that means that you know, even, even if Nauru or, or Vanuatu only has a, has a tiny mission in New York, those countries can combine, they can work together, and they can, uh, you know, they can really shape policy discussions on issues of existential importance to them. So we do spend an outsized share of our time 
trying to understand the calculations of the major powers, but actually it's often uh, smaller countries that are a, a sort of driving policy policy debates in uh, in many areas of huge importance to the UN. Absolutely. I'd love to have your point of view on values. Um, do you think that the values on which the current multilateral system is built are increasingly contested? And what values would you put forward for finding common ground? I think we are seeing a significant pushback against certain liberal values in the UN system on the part of China and Russia. And in the 1990s and in the first decade of this century, the UN was the the epicentre of a a massive uh, expansion of norms and agendas such as the Women, Peace and Security agenda uh, that really sort of reshaped how states talk to each other about international affairs. And, you know, this was a very important feature of the UN's post-Cold War work, the, the sort of the normative revolution. I think it's worth saying that, you know, often the, the talk advanced further than states advanced in reality. I mean, we know, for example, that many countries are still you know, not living up to their promises when it comes to empowering women, especially uh, women in, in conflict zones. Nonetheless, um, the, the normative bar and the bar on human rights was, um, was raised enormously uh, after 1989. Now we see China and Russia questioning uh, some of those agendas, some of those values. They're not alone in that. I mean, I, I think that most diplomats in New York would tell you that you're not going to see any big advances in terms of formal resolutions on uh, on gender issues, for example, in the uh, in the near future, because uh, they get tangled up in in big power tensions. I th- I think though that we should also keep in mind that you don't you don't necessarily need to have big new resolutions, big new flagship initiatives to to fight for these values. Um, what matters is that the UN system continues to try and implement um, values like gender equality in its development work, in its um, political work. And I think actually a lot of UN officials remain fairly, fairly strongly committed to doing that. The other trend that I see right now is, is a bit of a return to some of the the founding values of the UN and the founding values of the UN Charter, you know, values dating back to the 1940s rather than to the 1990s. So in the context of the war on Ukraine, we've actually seen countries from all regions of the world rallying around Ukraine's basic right to sovereignty. And a lot of small countries, you know, small countries far away from Europe, have sided with Ukraine in the General Assembly because they believe very strongly that its sovereignty and its territorial integrity are values that they must stand up for because uh, they, they are universal. So, you know, actually I think we're seeing a bit of a return to really focusing on core values in the international system like sovereignty. Simultaneously, some of, some of the more liberal agendas of recent times are under pressure, 
but I, I you know I think they are defensible um, but clearly in a period of international power shifts and transitions the values debates will get caught up in power debates too yes Let's talk now a bit about the UN at the core of the multilateral system. You mentioned that in the 1990s, but nowadays um, uh, you've been working in New York for a long time now. What do you see as the most notable change? I think the most notable change in, in the New York headquarters of the UN was that some years ago, the powers that be decided that they would set up an open plan office system for the secretariat, uh, which everyone loathes. <laughs> so um, uh, you, you have this awful, um, very trendy open plan uh, layout for UN officials that I think is probably bad for multilateralism. It's uh, happening here in Geneva too. Well, it will, it will significantly reduce everyone's uh, joy in life, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> this is bad news. It's bad news. Being more serious, um, I think what has really what has really started to change over the last decade, but especially really in the last few years, is that we're seeing the return of an idea that has resonance from the later Cold War era, but it's sort of been forgotten, and, and that's the idea of the global South, and. Um, in in some really important recent debates, we have seen you know the countries of Africa, Asia, and Latin America banding together, identifying as a, a loosely unified global South, and really challenging the West over some of the way that rich Western countries have been been managing multilateralism, and so. And this is true over the way that the rich world responded to COVID. I think there has been a lot of anger from developing countries over the way that Western states hoarded COVID vaccines. Um, There's also a lot of criticism over rich countries' failure to live up to past pledges to provide funding to poorer states uh, for climate adaptation. And then I just think more generally... Non-Western countries are starting to ask, you know, why they have, frankly, pretty limited institutional privileges uh, in many multilateral bodies, whether that's the Security Council, um, where there is no African or Latin American permanent representation, uh, or the governing boards of the IMF and World Bank. And so we were talking earlier about how there are East-West tensions re-emerging between the US, China and Russia, but we're also seeing the re-emergence of of North-South tensions um, between the Western group of states and and this loosely defined coalition of of global South countries. Um, I emphasise that it's loosely defined because I don't think we're back in the 1970s um, or 1980s when uh, you had a very forceful non-aligned movement that challenged the West. I think that there's still actually more space for diplomatic cooperation between uh, the various groups and blocs than was the case in the later Cold War. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, this this phenomenon of of the global South, um, the self-conscious global South, has 
you know, is, is clearly back. And it, it's, it's very much shaping a lot of debates about what the goals of current UN reform initiatives should be, for example. So you brought it up, uh, reform. Um, can we accept half measures? And um, what sort of practical steps do you think we can take? Well, look, we're in a, we're in a quandary because the world is, is changing very fast. And we're not just talking about shifting power dynamics. You know, we are in a world where the the long predicted impacts of climate change um, are starting to be felt more and more painfully. For example, in the recent floods in Pakistan, um, we're in a world where you know technology is uh, accelerating at an enormous pace. I mean, you know, in a year or two from now, maybe you and I will just be to chat GPT bots talking to one another about multilateralism. Um, and I think, you know, looking at the situation logically, you know, clearly something needs to be done to try and get UN climate diplomacy back on track. No, no one thinks that it's on track. Um, but, you know, uh, there's evidently a need for a huge global effort to try and live up to the the promises of the 2015 Paris Agreement. And then clearly, uh, you know, the UN system you know, doesn't have all the rules and regulations that we need to deal with artificial intelligence, um, you know, new, new robotics and all sorts of other technological challenges. So there is an enormous need for reform, you know, on top of some of the underlying grievances that I referred to on behalf of the Global South about the way power is distributed across the UN system. So there's a, there's a need for reform. There's a sense that this is a moment for reform. But it is very hard to do really fundamental reforms to the international system in a moment when you know, some of the key players in that system are, are deadlocked geopolitically and are very, very suspicious of one another. And so... Right now, the UN is working to a very grandly named summit slated for September 2024, the summit of the future. And Secretary General Guterres has sort of said the summit of the future should be the moment when world leaders come together and look at the huge gaps that we can see in the multilateral system uh, around issues like climate change and and technology. Uh, I mean, I think that it's going to be very hard to get a real consensus between the big powers and within the wider UN membership about how the system should be transformed to to deal with these accelerating challenges. I mean, instead, I think what we will probably see is half measures, you know, establishing a new UN dialogue mechanisms to address the challenges of AI, for example, you know, maybe some tweaks to the governance of the international financial institutions to reflect the demands of the global south. It's, it's going to be imperfect. But um, you know, sometimes we have to be realistic. Sometimes we have to accept that the reform of the international system is, is gradual. And you know, we should try and find the best half measures available <laughs> To, um, uh, to deal with the multiple challenges that we face, even if we know intellectually that this is a moment when we should be having you know, much more fundamental change.
Um, what about inclusivity? How do how could we do something around making the UN more inclusive? I mean, there are lots of definitions of inclusivity, um, and I mean, I do think that in in New York, and I presume also in Geneva, I mean, there is a a strong institutional focus on on gender equality now. Um, and I think that that is one form of inclusion where there is broadly a consensus that we have to, to move forward. Um, again, as I said before, to some extent, actually just implementing commitments on gender equality that states have already made. But then if you look at other definitions of inclusive, inclusivity, you run into problems. Um, you know, a lot of NGOs, um, and not only Western NGOs, would argue that we need to to rethink global governance to give players that are not states a greater say in decision-making. And the current Secretary-General, I think, likes to talk about this phrase, you know, multi-stakeholder uh, diplomacy, um, that reflects that idea, that in future diplomatic negotiations shouldn't just involve governments, it should involve NGOs, civil society actors, perhaps the private sector on a case-by-case basis. Now, again, that that might make sense conceptually, but it, it faces a lot of opposition, and it faces opposition not least from some smaller, less well-resourced UN members who worry that if you allow all these other actors into the room, their voices are going to be excluded. And uh, you know, especially if you allow big corporations to start shaping discussions of issues like cyber and artificial intelligence, then you know, smaller, poorer countries are going to be to be marginalised. So, inclusion is is a very fashionable phrase, but I think we should realise that there are some some real political tensions over how we deliver on certain def- uh, definitions of inclusion. We are coming fairly quickly to the 2030 agenda and um, 17 goals, 169 targets. It's not far around the corner and we're already starting to look a bit beyond that. What's your view on the SDGs and how far do you think we have shifted trajectory to a really sustainable and resilient path? How can we accelerate change? If... If I were to be entirely frank, I think we have to face up to the fact that we are not going to fulfil the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. Um, you know, just to take the, the sort of the most compelling headline goal, we are not on track to eradicate extreme poverty. And in fact, in the last couple of years, um, with the economic shocks of COVID and the economic shocks associated with Russia's war on Ukraine, we've actually seen uh, poverty levels going back up in some regions where they had been had been going down. And I think this is one factor in this re-emergence of, of the Global South as a force in the UN, which is a lot of developing countries are looking at their, their economic challenges. They're also struggling with debt burdens in many cases. And there is a growing recognition that the, you know, the UN membership as a whole 
um, is going to fall short of achieving the, the ambitions of the 2030 agenda. Now, to be cynical, that was always likely to be the case, even without the shocks of, of COVID and Russia's actions in Ukraine. Um, the Millennium Development Goals, you know, the, the basis for the SDGs, were also not fulfilled um, in, in, in many cases. You know, these, are, these are goals. Um, they are ambitious and complicated goals. There were always bound to be some failures. But I, I do worry that in the coming years we're going to be hearing um, increasing recriminations, especially from developing countries that quite justifiably they feel like they have been let down by uh, their, their richer counterparts. At the same time, uh, a lot of the countries, such as you know, your, your home country and mine, the UK, that were previously big leaders in the field of international development are tiptoeing away um, from their uh, previous commitments to, to development aid. I mean, other other demands on national budgets mean that in the coming coming few years, aid is going to be under a lot of stress, and you know this is a an enormous uh, an, an enormous challenge. I think what what we need to do, and I should say that I'm you know, I've tended to focus on security rather than development, but you know we do need to try and find more smart ways to promote economic growth. So one, one strand of preparations for the summit of the future is um, something that's being called a digital compact, which will be, a, I think, a fairly broad, um, fairly shallow agreement about, amongst member states about the future governance of um, the internet. But that will include, hopefully, pledges to get access to the internet for the two to three billion people around the world who still actually cannot get online. And if you think that about three billion out of the eight billion world population don't have access to the internet today, that is clearly an enormous obstacle to uh, their economic progress. Um, frankly, if you, could, if you could get those three billion people online... That would probably do more for international development than you know, any number of more old-school aid projects. So we have to think creatively about, about those sorts of issues as we approach 2030 and also as we move beyond 2030. Let's go back then to our common agenda and talk a bit more about the Summit for the Future. Uh, so the Summit for the Future was called for in the report, Our Common Agenda, which was the SDGs report in response to Member States' declaration at the 75th anniversary of the UN in 2020 and their request for recommendations to address current and future challenges, of which you have mentioned just some of the very many. And it it again noted the need for a new agenda for peace and identified six potential areas for, for the agenda. You mentioned one of them. And, of course, putting women and girls at the centre, which you have mentioned throughout this conversation. Um, there, are, there are a lot of things happening. How do you think these initiatives are being welcomed by member states? To be absolutely frank, I think that a lot of member states, especially member states with small emissions and, and fewer diplomats in, in 
New York um, are, are struggling to keep up with the sheer scale and complexity of of this common agenda. Um, there are currently 13 intergovernmental tracks of negotiation that I think relate somehow to the common agenda going on in New York. I mean, if you can imagine, if you're in a mission which maybe only has five, six, seven diplomats, trying to cover all these discussions, including you know complex discussions of things like internet governance, is just a bit befuddling. And so if you talk to diplomats in uh, in Manhattan at the moment, you know, they will tell you that they feel overloaded and um, they are, they're struggling to keep up with all the different debates that are going on. Um, my suspicion is that over the coming months, we will probably see member states edging towards some sort of definition of what the art of the possible is um, when it comes to the summit of the future. And they will start to define which areas they believe should be the priorities for the summit in 2024. Um, So I've referred to the digital compact already. I think that that is one area where there are huge differences over exactly what it should contain, you know, reflecting different national views of internet governance, but nonetheless having some sort of landmark statement on wiring up the world uh, is, is clearly a, a good outcome um, for, uh, for this process, and I, I think everyone will get behind that. My instinct is that some of the future will also probably involve some sort of international agreement about reforming the IMF and the World Bank to make them more responsive to the concerns of the global south. Um, however, that is politically treacherous territory, and I don't know exactly how concrete that promise will be, but I think that's going to be a big, big focus going forward. I think there are some questions over what other issues will will end up being a major feature in 2024. One topic that has been on the table and and absorbing a lot of attention is Security Council reform. Um, President Biden said last September that the US would back Security Council reform, and that got a lot of diplomats maybe a little too excited. Um, The US has been leading consultations on this over the last six months or so. So far, I don't think there's any sign that the UN membership can get together on a, a consensus plan for reforming the Security Council. So actually, I think that topic will fade away as we move towards the summit of the future, whereas the question of how to shift governance in the international financial institutions will remain at the top of the agenda because it's so important to developing states in, in particular. You know, In addition to that, there's just a plethora of possible priorities for the summit. I... I do think that the Secretary-General will will really want to see, at least, as I said before, you know, half measures in terms of states sort of agreeing new formats to at least discuss new technologies. I mean, I think that's something which Guterres believes is of you know, existential importance to humanity. Um, I think there will also be more focused efforts to address 
some security issues, um, such as the spread of jihadist violence in, in Africa. Um, there are proposals on the table for the UN to offer the African Union more funding to deal with, with crises in Africa. You know, so that these are the sort of important topics that could be part of the, the 2024 package. But as I say, my, my gut feeling is that it, at the end of the day, the international economic system is going to be the central topic of conversation. Richard, you're normally in New York. Today you're in Geneva. Um, just a little word, how do you see the role of the Geneva office in the system? I mean, yeah, as, as you say, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a jaded New Yorker, um, an Englishman in New York, I like Sting. Um, but <laughs> with a slightly different focus. I, you know, I have to say that despite being a, a diehard New Yorker and, and Brooklynite, um, I do think that the, the Geneva UN family is really central to dealing with a lot of the challenges we've been talking about and a lot of the challenges that the UN is going to face going forward. I mean, obviously, as someone who's worked on crisis management for, for many years, I've always appreciated the role of organizations like UNHCR. But when it comes to addressing topics like the military uses of new technologies, for example, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the expertise, uh, diplomatic expertise on those issues is based here in Geneva um, around the Conference on Disarmament. And I, I also think that right at the moment, you know, although the political fallout of Russia's war on Ukraine is, is, is very present in Geneva too, this is a slightly less politicized environment than, than the Security Council. And that actually discussions through the, the technical agencies in Geneva may offer ways to address some of the problems um, that multilateralism faces, at least at half a remove from, you know, all the, all the sound and fury in New York. Now, I know there's still a lot of sound and fury here, not least around the Human Rights Council, but I, you know, I've heard a lot of uh, colleagues from around the UN system saying in the last year or so that they think that it may actually be easier to have constructive discussions of multilateral problems in, in Geneva than it is currently in, in New York. You know, ultimately, you need both cities, and you need Vienna and Nairobi and all the other UN centres, but um, I, think, I think Geneva is an important space for addressing a lot of the problem, problems we've just been discussing. It's been a very insightful conversation, and you really do explain very well. Um, Thank you. Do you have any final thoughts for us? No, I, I would like to get to the bottom of why Wi-Fi is so bad in Geneva, but I think that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> it certainly is. Well, Richard Gowan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you.